Welcome to the Clinical Education Initiative podcast, Conversations with CEI, where we feature conversations with clinical experts, their experience and insights on current health issues in the areas of HIV, primary care and prevention, sexual health, hepatitis C, and drug user health. Hello, I'm Tony Urbina, the Medical Director for CEI's HIV Primary Care and Prevention Center of Excellence. I am a provider and professor of medicine who has been working in HIV and LGBTQ health for over 20 years. In the current political landscape, transgender healthcare and rights have been used to stoke political divisiveness, creating confusion, and perpetuating misinformation. As healthcare providers, it's important to focus on the facts and how we can best support all patients, provide inclusive care, and support the health and well-being of the transgender community, especially during these tumultuous times. In today's episode, I speak with Dr. Carolyn Wolf-Gould, an expert in transgender medicine. Dr. Wolf-Gould has been a family physician in Oneonta, New York since 1994, and has been practicing transgender medicine as part of general primary care since 2007. She and her team of providers were the recipients of a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Clinical Scholars Grant from 2016 to 2019 to create a role-based center of excellence in transgender health for upstate New York, where the Gender Wellness Center at Susquehanna Family Practice was established. Carolyn is a member of the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, or WPATH, And she's also committed to training healthcare providers and professionals on including transgender health services into primary care. For the last few years, Dr. Wolf Gold has provided clinical trainings on gender affirming care to healthcare providers throughout New York State. Welcome, Carolyn, and thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Tony. Yeah. So let's start off. Just tell me a little bit how, a little bit about your background and kind of what got you into this work. That's a good question. Yeah, so I came to Oneonta in 1994 as a general family practice doc in a small rural hospital. So I started out delivering babies, offering primary care, caring for my own patients in the hospital, ICU, and was doing that until about 2007 when my first trans patient reached out for care. So a transgender man had moved to Oneonta and reached out and said, I've been on T for 10 years and I need someone who can prescribe it here in Oneonta. And like many doctors, I'd had no training, no training in college, no training in medical school, no training in my residency. And and I told the patient that, I'm sorry, I I can't take care of you. And he was persistent and said, well, I really need care and I can't drive to Philadelphia every time I need my testosterone renewed. So could you please learn how to take care of me? So I reached out to an administrator who was supportive. I told her, what one thing people don't know about doctors is that we're always facing new clinical issues that we don't know how to care for. And we're always learning new things. And generally, when faced with a new issue, we ask ourselves, what what if this person was my sibling or my child? We certainly would want them to have good care. So that was how I started with the work. At that time, there were no CME conferences or, or places really where you could learn trans health. So I joined WPATH, the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, and reached out to people there and started reading the medical literature. Over the next five years, I had four more trans patients reach out for care. And starting in 2012, things things really took off. And by 2016, I had, I think, 350 patients who had very unique, both medical, social, legal needs. 
And I started to realize that, that we needed more than just one person. We needed a center, an interdisciplinary center to really give good care to our patients. So that was when I reached out for funding from, and we received a grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. It was actually a leadership training grant where a team of us spent three years working on our aspiration, which was to create a center of excellence, a rural-based center of excellence in trans health for our rural upstate region. So that three years, during that three years, we really created a structural framework for our center. And to date, we've served over almost, actually almost 1,400 medical patients almost 800 patients who have requested mental health services. Many trans people complain that they have to educate their doctors. And while it's not ideal that I was one of those people, I think I also can say that our story attests to the fact that a single patient reaching out to an uninformed doctor in a broken system can drive a system to change. And the Gender Wellness Center, I think, attests to to that work. That is an amazing story and in particular that you were able to do it in not an urban setting but in a rural setting and set up such a valuable center i would love to hear more about the important work the gender wellness center is doing could you share that sure i'd be happy to so the gender wellness center which is out of the bassett healthcare network has a six-pronged program and this is what we put together during our three-year leadership grant we have three medical sections and three non-medical sections. The first is medical care for transgender people, transgender and gender diverse people across a lifespan, including the care of transgender adolescents. Our youngest patient, I think, has been four. And of course, we're not medically doing anything for that child. We're just checking in and doing well child checks. But we do see youth who are expressing gender diversity at that age. Our oldest patient has been in her 80s. We also provide mental health services across the lifespan through a very generous grant from the New York State Department of Health. And Bassett offers some of the basic gender-affirming surgeries, including top surgery, breast augmentation, some of the basic facial feminization surgeries, hysterectomy, and orchiectomy. The bottom surgeries, we do refer to specialty centers, mostly in New York City. And then our non-clinical services include a very robust training and education program, We have students constantly with us at the Gender Wellness Center doing on-site training, and we do a lot of didactic trainings. We perform community-based research and have partnered with the Bassett Research Institute, do a number of studies in our community, mostly based on mostly rural-based care. And then we partner, we have legal advocacy, and we partner with the Volunteer Lawyers Project of Central New York to offer legal services, including document changes and other legal questions to our patients. So that's our six-pronged program. We aspired to create a center of excellence. And according to our own standards, we have not yet achieved that level, but we do consider ourselves a center of exemplary care at this time. That's uh, extraordinary. Lots of resources there, but it looks like it took a bit of choreography to get there. Looks like the center is is on thriving. It is. Thank you. Just to kind of bring it back to basics and just for our audience, I guess for any trans individual, but specifically for adolescents, why is affirming someone's gender identity so important? It's important because if supported, transgender and gender diverse youth are more likely to thrive. The healthcare disparities for trans adults are are very well documented. And also for trans youth, much higher rates of depression, anxiety, addictions, HIV, just many 
many more healthcare disparities. There's one study that showed that trans youth who are supported are more likely to have life satisfaction, 72%, as opposed to 33% who did not have supportive parents. 64% of those trans youth with supportive parents reported high self-esteem compared to 13% with unsupportive parents. 4% of trans youth with supportive parents attempted suicide and 57% with unsupported parents committed suicide. Similarly, rates of depression were much lower. Housing problems, mental health was much improved in those youth with supportive parents compared to those without. 41% of adults, adult transgender people have reported a suicide attempt. So it's very clear that not treating gender dysphoria is unacceptable. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like it's something that providers could easily do is just to affirm patients' gender. What do you see as some of the biggest hurdles for providers in taking care of trans youth, especially those providers that maybe haven't had a lot of experience dealing with the LGBTQ community? Yeah, I think most providers have not been trained. The amount of time devoted to training healthcare professionals around LGBT health is generally minimal. I think most medical students get about four hours of training and that's all of LGBT health. So really concentrated time, understanding the nuances of gender identity, gender expression, understanding the stories of transgender people, understanding the different subgroups of transgender people. Providers just haven't had that training. So then they're often, like me, faced with a new clinical problem they haven't encountered before, and they don't really know where to turn. Yeah. I think that I would echo your sentiments there, just something kind of new to learn, and they feel that it may be too complex or maybe too overwhelming. I think another issue on providers' minds sometimes has been kind of this recent onslaught of this nationwide legislation attacking LGBTQ rights, especially transgendered youth. And there's been this kind of political firestorm that has perpetuated a lot of misinformation about what it means to provide gender inclusive care for young people. I think there's also been a lot of anxiety about hormone replacement therapy and transitioning young folks. So what are your thoughts kind of about that? And do you think it's important to have in these conversations in particular with youth? Yeah, interesting question. So usually in our office, a family presents to us with a child who's experiencing dysphoria or distress. So it's not just a conversation with the youth, but it's a conversation with the youth system, those people who are there supporting the child. So I like to think about all the people who are worried during that first visit. Often the parents are worried. They're asking me, why is my child like this? Did I do something wrong? Is this from social contagion? Is this a phase? Is somebody going to hurt my child? Will my child find love? My school won't let him wear girl clothes. The school reported me to CPS for letting him wear girl clothes. My husband is blaming me for not disciplining him. The parents are coming in with a whole bunch of worries. The child similarly is coming to the office with a whole lot of worries. I get bullied in school. My parents are upset. My parents don't like me. I don't see myself when I look in the mirror. Something is wrong with me. I have to pretend to be someone I'm not. People get mad when I do things that make me unhappy. I'm unlovable. I don't belong anywhere. I'm the only one like this. No one understands or believes me. So those the kids are coming in with all of those worries. 
Right. The clinician is also coming in with worries. And I am very careful when I evaluate the youth. I worry, what if I make a mistake? What if the child regrets later? Is my hospital going to support this work? What about the legislation that's being introduced that threatens to criminalize this kind of work? How do I handle such upset parents? What if this child commits suicide? All those things are also present from my side. So unpacking all of those worries is the first part of what we do. And that can often take take quite a bit of time. So we sort through things. I like to think of it as very much teamwork. And I consider the team to be myself, the youth, the parents or guardians support people for that child, and usually the therapist too, who's involved. And then there are many other people supporting that inner, that kind of central team, the schools, the coaches, maybe religious environments, professional organizations, pride organizations. So I, I guess I think it's very important to work within that team to slowly over time, and time is usually our friend in this work. Sometimes when people present, there's just a lot going on and things are uncertain. But over time, it usually becomes very clear what the right path is to everyone on the team. Wow, that's great. So it does look like your wellness center does really approach this kind of team-based approach. I think outside of a center like yours, what would you want providers to know the next time that they should encounter a transgender patient, in particular, a young trans patient? You know, I think probably the most important thing to know is just to understand how nuanced gender is. Most of us in our culture are brought up to believe that gender is a binary there's a men's room and a woman's room. And so we tend to divide people into those two strict two strict categories. When a baby is born, we say it's a boy or it's a girl. But in fact, even at birth, there are variations. And some children are born intersex or, or in the middle between male and female. So I think it's important for people to understand the difference between assigned sex at birth. That's the gender one is assigned based on their genitals, which could be male, could be female, or could be intersex, something in between and one's gender identity. So one's gender identity is very personal. It's one's own experience sense of being masculine or feminine inside. And then the other component, of course, is gender expression, how we wear our gender, what, what signals we give to the world with our haircut, our glasses, our clothing. And for that provider, I would caution them to remember that the only thing they can tell from looking at a patient is their expressed gender. They don't know the child, that person's sex assigned at birth necessarily, and they certainly don't know that person's gender identity unless they ask or unless they're told. So I think that's the most important thing. And as clinicians, we should be asking those questions so that we can provide tailored interventions to those who need them. I think that's really great advice. And I think going back to where you're saying your first kind of meeting, oftentimes it's with family members as well assessing what are the outstanding issues and the dynamics there with both the patient and the family. At, at on what point or how often is transitioning with hormones or surgeries brought up? It's brought up often. Many people have questions about that from the get-go. The decision to begin medical interventions, again, usually takes place within that team. And interventions are based on stages, not ages. So the first interventions that we offer are pubertal blockers, and those are medications that halt puberty. Someone going through puberty in their assigned gender, for example, if someone is born assigned male at birth and is going through a masculine puberty, but their gender identity is female, that can be very, very distressing and cause intense dysphoria. 
So we can use the same medications that have been used for precocious puberty to halt puberty, to stop it, to give that child and the family some time to assess what's the right path. Are hormones indicated for this child? Again, we take our time, we let everything settle out, sort through things. And when it is time, everybody knows when it's time, usually we can begin hormone therapy so that that child will experience puberty congruent with their gender identity. It's an intervention that is very successful in the treatment of gender dysphoria with pubertal blockers and hormone therapy is considered a medically necessary and evidence-based intervention with good results. Great. Thank you for that. So obviously you've been working in this field a while. I can, I can sense your passion and your really commitment and it's great. I'm sure patients really appreciate meeting with you and making them feel comfortable. Kind of looking forward, what do you see as either promising or maybe not so promising about moving our comfort towards treating the transgender community? What do you see the future like? It's an interesting time. I've seen so many changes since I started this work in 2007. And in New York State, I think we're really quite lucky. The culture of health has changed in this state. In When I started in 2007, insurance companies did not cover this medically necessary treatment for transgender people. In 2015, that changed and insurance coverage now does cover these medically necessary hormonal and surgical interventions for our patients. That was a huge change. Over time, I've seen more funding for services and research. Our center has has benefited greatly from funding from the New York State Department of Health. And I see more acceptance in our community across the state for transgender people. That said, we're holding, I'm holding two conflicting truths in my hand. And the other is that across the country, we seem to be going backwards. And many states are now either legislating or proposing legislation that will restrict care for transgender youth. Iowa recently passed legislation outlawing care for youth. Florida, Texas, I believe Nebraska is up next. And I'm hearing from colleagues in those states, suddenly their patients have nowhere to go. These kids are adrift with their dysphoria, unable to get treatment. We're seeing people fleeing, medical refugees coming to New York State from these states seeking care. So while things are going forward in New York State, sadly, they're going backwards in other parts of the country and hard to hold those two conflicting truths and continue to know how to go on. Yeah, no, I can see why those those are definitely conflicting. Well, Carolyn, I want to thank you for joining me today. And just how can our audience members learn more about the work that you're doing or how to better provide care to transgender patients, including transgender youths? I think people who are listening to the podcast, I would encourage you to listen to the stories of transgender people, listen to the stories of youth, rather than try to correct them, hear them, hear what they're saying, read the evidence that supports these medically necessary treatments, understand that those who are legislating against the ability to treat these kids really don't have evidence-based that support their, their assertion that this is dangerous for youth. I really haven't seen any any medical documents that support the claim that it's dangerous. And there's a, a whole body of evidence supporting how important it is. So I think that's what's most important. Become an ally. Listen to right. your trans neighbors, relatives, community members, and keep your mind open how best you can ally in this endeavor. Great. Well, thank you so much for spending the time with us today and sharing your expertise. We want to thank everyone for 
listening to our conversation today. And to learn more, please check out our podcast notes or go to ceitraining.org. Thank you for tuning in. Join us next time for a new episode of Conversations with CEI. Visit us at ceitraining.org and follow us on CEI social media platforms.